I'm reading scripture from Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, and then 8 through 13. This is her talking. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with the raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Verse 8. Listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread the fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. Thank you, Martin. And uh, Martin's leaving now for the airport, so I wish you safe travels, my friend. See you in December, and uh, we ski together. It's very good. And I'm teaching at a ski week in March with Martin. If you want to see how much a better skier he is than me, uh, you can go to the website and sign up. It's an English-speaking week. would love to have you there. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful that we can gather within these walls listening for your voice, inviting you to shape us, Father, uh, as people of hope, people uh, who would shine as light and grace and truth in our world, in our homes. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would just be moving among us to speak to each heart here. We gather in different states and conditions, believing that you can speak to each. And we're grateful for that, Father, and we open our hearts to you now. We pray this in the name of Christ, who is our hope. Amen. Uh, I'm in the Song of Solomon in a continuing series this morning in the second chapter. And our theme this morning really is covenant. And we want to learn a little bit about what it means to be in covenant relationships. And to begin, I'll remind you, if you don't know it, and you probably don't, of the University of Virginia's Marriage Project. It's a study done by University of Virginia uh, interviewing and surveying thousands of high school students to understand what emerging generations think of marriage. Very alarmingly, you would learn in this study that less than one-third of high school senior girls, that would be 18-year-old girls, less than one-third of girls, slightly only more than a third of boys, believe that marriage is more beneficial to individuals than alternatives. So if you're holding up marriage versus any other alternative, only one-third of high school seniors believe that marriage is of benefit to them personally or to culture. This is gigantic and it's under the radar and yet hugely significant. And it's one of the many reasons that people are marrying later. When I travel and teach at schools like Tauernhof in Austria, I'm privileged to sit with 18 to 25 year olds for every meal while I'm there. And I ask, it's a common question I ask, why do you think your generation is marrying later? One of the themes that shows up over and over again is this. I don't see any marriage worth emulating. I'm not hungry to get married and be miserable like all my parents and their friends. Right? And so people are skeptical about the health of marriage, and there are other reasons. 
Some of the other reasons, though, are uh, articulated by legal scholar John Witt, who says, and I'm quoting again, the ideal of marriage as a permanent covenant union designed for the sake of mutual love, procreation, and protection has slowly given way to a new reality of marriage as a, quote, terminal sexual contract, unquote, designed primarily for the gratification of individual parties, so that rather than coming together, it's the gratification of individual parties. And then continuing on, uh, scholar Witt, legal scholar Witt says, older cultures uh, taught members to find meaning in duty and by embracing assigned social roles and carrying them out faithfully. Just that sentence, older cultures taught their members to find meaning in duty, embracing assigned social roles and carrying them out faithfully almost sounds offensive to, to our ears, right? Because we live in a highly individualistic and consumeristic culture. And so what this author says, is, as he continues, he says, during the Enlightenment, things began to shift. And the meaning of life came to be seen as developing freedom for every individual to choose the life which most fulfills him or her personally. In other words, the highest value in the culture in which we find ourselves now is what makes me feel good right? I, I'm very interested in my own individual freedom. And uh, then with that lens, as I approach marriage, I begin, to, I, I, I begin to seek marriage, if I'm seeking marriage at all, with, through a very different lens. And this should be concerning everyone in the room. No matter what we're, it's like our big, we're worried about politics, we're worried about terror, we're worried about the economy. But I'm telling you, History tells us there has never been a sustainable culture ever that doesn't sustain a high view of marriage. As goes marriage, so goes a culture, right? And so this morning, what we want to see is what the Bible has to say about marriage, not as a contract, which is kind of the prevailing view in our, in our culture, not as a co contract, but as a covenant. And then we want to see uh, what this means for our relationship with God and our vision for marriage, right? A vision which matters to all of us in the room, whether you're married or single, my deep desire would be that as Bethany Community Church, we have this kind of robust view of healthy marriage that both single and married people are living into and helping one another live into uh, for the sake of one another and for the sake of our own transformation. So uh, we're gonna, I'm going to give you some vast context, and then we'll look at three themes about covenant uh, uh, toward the end. But here's the context in Song of Solomon chapter 2. What you see at the very outset is these two are uh, just crazy in love with each other. You'd see it, right? And I want you to see that this is beautiful and uh, a vision to which we can aspire. Look at what he says about her in verse 2. Like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. In other words, she's part, as we've seen already, she's part of a harem. And all the women in the harem are probably fairly attractive. But what he is saying is when I, like, he's like this. When I look at you, when I look at you, everybody else is like a thorn compared to you. So, he, like, there's a, there's a love song, isn't there? I think there's, there's got to be one called I Only Have Eyes for You. Isn't that true? Is there a love song? I only, yeah. If there isn't, we'll write one because it's, it's a beautiful sentiment. It's like, okay, there's other women, but you, like when I see you, my heart lights up, right? That's what he's saying in verse 2. And then look what she says about him in verses 8 and 9. Listen, my beloved, behold, he's coming. <clears throat> Climbing on the mountains, leaping on the mountains. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. He's, and then he's standing behind our wall, looking through the windows, peering through the lattice. Now you read that and you're like, he's a creeper. I don't want anything to do with him. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not what he's saying. What, what she's saying is, um, 
she feels, when she's with him, deeply loved. In other words, uh, like she's blessed by his gaze of her. That's this peering through the lattice thing, you see? So like this is... This is uh, ennobling to her, dignifying to her, life-giving to her, and she's receiving this love for, from him. So what we're largely looking at today is the perspective of covenant love through the eyes of, uh, in this case, the groom or the husband, right? And she's saying, I'm just receiving this, and it's beautiful. And then you see in verse 5 that this love is so powerful. She says there, sustain me with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples. Why? Because I am, and here's the word, I'm lovesick, lovesick. What, is that, what does lovesick mean? Well, if you read romantic novels, you probably have some idea of lovesick, but uh, we want to deconstruct that for just a minute here, because conventional wisdom regarding lovesick means, look, like, she's just drunk with love. Why? Because she found the perfect person for her. And then here's the subtext for most of us in the room, the secret subtext. Oh, I wish I'd found the perfect person, but alas, I married her instead, Right? And, 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 and so there's this kind of sense of disillusionment because we didn't find the perfect person. Now, uh, interesting, uh, under that mindset is this notion that romance is about shopping for the perfect person and dating is about shopping for the perfect person. There's an inherent flaw in that thinking, a uh, couple of them actually. Flaw number one, uh, you will never marry a person who's perfectly compatible with you. Can I just say, that's a joke, right? So I don't know much about online dating because I got married 38 years ago and Al Gore hadn't invented the internet yet, so I don't, I don't know. We just had to sit and drink tea and uh, in my case, my wife uh, had received some you know, Alaskan king crab legs from a guy up in Alaska who had a crush on her, and he was in the Coast Guard, and uh, we were sharing a class together, and she said to me at the end of one class, hey, do you know anybody who likes Alaskan king crab legs? And I was like, well, don't tell anyone about those king crab legs, but I do know someone, and she says, who? And I said, me. And she said, oh, you want to come? And then, she, you know, so what she did brilliantly is she, do like, she rationed them out, a crab leg per class, and so I, like, I had to keep going back to her dorm room for crab legs, and then we fell in love, right? <laughs> but why do I say all this? Here's just, okay, the notion of perfect person, let me just talk about this for a minute. Uh, how many have taken a test called the Myers-Briggs test in here? It's like a personality test. Many of you have, if you like some corporate people use it to determine how your team works and all those kinds of things. And if you take this test, you get four letters, and each letter is like, part of a polarity. So you're either an introvert or an extrovert, a thinker or a feeler, et cetera, et cetera, right? So you're either one letter or the other. There aren't a lot of letters. There's only eight total. So in our marriage, um, I have four letters, E-N-F-P. My wife has exactly the opposite letters. We don't share a letter on this personality test. So we are, like on paper, completely incompatible, right? And yet, I would say, married 38 years and am you know, pretty happily married 38 years. Why? Because compatibility isn't the point of marriage. And we'll see this. In fact, often you go in looking for compatibility and you end up marrying somebody who's 
actually pretty dramatically different than you for reasons that will become apparent as we go through this book a little bit further. But uh, many, this is what we read, many men and women, and now I'm quoting Sarah Lipton from the New York Times, uh, she says, many men and women today want a marriage in which they can receive emotional sexual satisfaction from someone who will simply let them be themselves. In other words, I don't want to change, what can you give me to make me feel better about me? That's the paradigm as we start shopping for marriage. And so therefore, we want someone who's stimulating, funny, sexually attractive, wealthy, ambitious but not too ambitious, with many common interests, and who on top of it all is supportive of my personal goals and always willing to sacrifice their own goals so that my goals can be achieved. That sounds easy to find, right? Uh, probably not. So that there's this classic uh, uh, comic essay again uh, out of New York City, entitled Picky, 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 where the author is interviewing uh, people on the dating scene in New York, and he says, you know, it's a stunning why people are abandoning uh, the person that they're dating. This uh, one woman uh, talks in the article about uh, meeting a guy online, and he just seemed, she said he just seemed perfect, right? Like uh, CrossFit instructor, lawyer, upwardly mobile, six figures, penthouse apartment, you know, every, I mean, it, ripe perfume, whatever. He's got everything, yeah. And then she says, and so, you know, I had him over, and then immediately, you know, before we even sat down, I knew this would never last. Why? His elbows were dirty. <laughs> and she was like this, can you imagine spending your life with someone who has dirty elbows? I can't. And so she said, that's it. The relationship is over. Why? Dirty elbows. Am I making my point? Picky, picky, picky. And so people are marrying later. Why? Because the bar is higher. And why is the bar higher? Because my criteria is no longer what can I bring to the table, but what do you give me? That's contract, not covenant. So, so uh, the woman here in Song Solomon has found the perfect one, quote unquote, not because they're compatible, but because she's found someone committed to covenant love. And in particular, committed to covenant love for her. His commitment to uh, uh, give to her and, and in the process of giving to be transformed by her. In other words, what do I bring to the table? I'll give to you and I know that in giving to you, this will cost me and I know that in this cost me, I'll be transformed. That's covenant love and that's what he does with her. So, so suddenly, now the reason that she sees him as so beautiful and the reason that he only has eyes for her isn't because he's looking at her and going, wow, look at all the things you bring to the table that make me more wonderful. No, he only has eyes for her because covenant love gives you a lens through which you look at a relationship and it's transformative. And so, so covenant then, here, this is foundational. We still haven't got to the outline yet, but it's a short sermon, so don't worry. Uh, the... the, the Still here in the, in, in the foundational context, understand something. Covenant love is about what you bring to the table to serve the other. That's essentially what covenant love is, right? What are you going to bring to the table to serve the other? And so you see the best example of covenant love in the Bible when you see God's covenant made uh, in, in the Old Testament with Abraham and then later with Jacob and then later with, again with Moses. God makes covenant promises. And the key phrase in any covenant text, Genesis 12, Genesis 14, Genesis 28... Um, uh, uh, Exodus uh, 6. In all those settings, here's what God says every time. God says this, I will. So he speaks, to, he speaks to Abraham. What does he say? Leave your country, leave your fathers. I will bless you. 
I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. You'll be the father of nations. And he rearticulates all that in Genesis 14 because years later, Abraham still doesn't have any children. And he says, God, how will I know that I'll possess it? And God rearticulates the covenant and then acts with the sign of the covenant in Genesis 14 so that God is saying, here's how you'll know because I have made a covenant. And if I make a covenant, I will do it, period. Not regardless of what you do, I will. And then this takes beautiful form in Genesis 28, because by then, God's chosen family, you know, Abraham gave birth to Isaac, Isaac gave birth to Jacob. Jacob now, by Genesis 28, is is a thief, is a liar, is a deceiver, is on the run, afraid for his life, he's fearful, he's anxious, he's disobeyed God, he's misrepresented God's heart, and God meets him in Genesis chapter 28, and in spite of his failures, what does God say? There's a ladder, there's angels coming up and down, and a dream that Jacob has as he's sleeping in the desert, and God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and Isaac, and this is what he says, I will bless you. Boom. Not because you obeyed me, you didn't. Not because you're honest, you're not. Not because you never stole anything, you did. Why will I bless you? Because that's what a covenant looks like. A covenant gives and gives and gives and gives and gives because that's the nature of covenant love. <laughs> so so you, want to learn, you want to know what a covenant looks like? Look at God. And you see that power of covenant in Genesis chapter 28, verse 13, where God meets uh, uh, Jacob and says, I will, I will, I will. I'll bring you back into the land. I'll bless you. I'll, I'll, I'll protect you when you're away from the land. I'll, I'll make you the father of nations. You will be a blessing. I'll do it. I love you too much to ever abandon you, but also I love you too much to allow you to remain the same. My love will transform you. That's covenant love. So in a culture where marriage has been diminished and trivialized, what you see in this text, in chapter 2 of Song of Solomon, is, are three aspects of covenant love that are vital in both our relationship with God and in our vision for marriage. The fruit of covenant love, we see. In other words, what does covenant love look like? The invitation to covenant love and the response to the covenant invitation. Let's look at all three, beginning with this, the fruit of covenant love. What you see here is uh, covenant love sustains, protects, provides, offers pleasure, and and. Covenant love is a place of fierce intent. Let me just unpack this by reading verses 3, 4, and 5. Uh, and, and she's speaking now of him. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight, sat down. His fruit was sweet to my taste. He's brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Sustain me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with apples. I'm lovesick. Verse 5 there t- tells us covenant love sustains. She says, look, I, look, I'm tired. Uh, there's something going on in me, and the only way I will be sustained, I need to be sustained by your love. Sustain me with your love. Covenant love, in other words, sustains another and sustains actually a love relationship. And we'll, t- we'll talk more about that in subsequent weeks, but for now, understand, that's, uh, what does covenant love, covenant love look like? Covenant love doesn't disintegrate. Covenant love sustains. Second, covenant love is a place of protection and provision because she speaks of him as, as if he's an apple tree. He's like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, and the tree provided two things, shade uh, and protection, and, fr- and actually fruit as well. So protection and provision, and he is that for her. And ultimately, she will be that for him as well. Then we see, too, the covenant is a place of pleasure. In his shade, I took great delight and sat down. His fruit was sweet to my taste. 
And then uh, we see the covenant love is a place of fierce intent, verse 4. He's brought me into his banquet hall. His banner over me is love. This is a very interesting phrase. Let's take a minute here and unpack it. You know, if you're driving uh, uh, around town here uh, and you see a, a pub, you see a sign outside the pub, right? Latona Pub. And when you see a sign outside a pub, you have a pretty good idea that it's a pub. Why? Because it says... Latona pub. You don't have to be a detective to figure this out. It's right there. This is, the, this, is this word, banner. Literally, this word is used in the Bible as a, a, a sign outside of a house of wine. So his banner over his love, what does that mean? Well, this is what it means. She, she's saying, I know that his intent for me is love. When I'm with him, this is a place this is a place of love. His banner over me is love. But the word is used another way. The same word banner is also used uh, to speak of armies going to battle. And so particularly, think of uh, medieval uh, battles. If you watch King Arthur recently or something like that, you know, that, you know when medieval battles would happen, right out front on the horse, w there'd be a guy not with weapons, but the first guy, was what, is, what was he carrying always? A flag, a banner. What does that banner mean? That banner means this army is here to protect what this banner represents. Do you see? And so when, when, when she says his banner over me is love, I mean, it kind of cracks me up. The theologians debate, it, look, is this, is this banner uh, about the, the, you know, the house of wine and a sign? Or is this banner about... Uh, uh, I'm fighting for something. Of course you know my answer. Yes. And like, why are we fighting about this? Because both of these are totally applicable here. Because what she's saying is, look, my beloved is both inviting me to receive his love. That's the house of wine. Like, come on in. You know when you're with me, it will be loved. You'll be, you know you'll be loved when you're with me. Wouldn't you love that in your marriage? To know that when I'm with her or him, I, to know that this will be about love. Love will govern this relationship. That's not mushy. It's not sentimental. Often it's tough. It includes hard conversations. But it will be governed not by anger, not by jealousy, not by pettiness, not by, by baggage, but by love. Wouldn't that be great? His banner over me is love. But then also, I will fight for this love. I'll fight for it. It'll be costly. I'll sacrifice for it. If necessary, Ephesians 5, I'll lay down my life for it. But this love is worth fighting for because this is covenant love. So, so this, there's application here for all in the room because all in the room are the bride of Christ. So we're the, we're the woman here in uh, chapter 2 and Christ is our groom and Christ is offering us covenant love. So you are already in a covenant relationship, single or married, you're in a covenant relationship because as the bride of Christ... You and I and all of us in the room are the recipients of the groom's covenant love. And how, what does that mean? Well, does Christ sustain us? Yeah, look at Matthew 11. Look, come unto me, all you who are what? Weary, heavy laden. In other words, using the message translation, here's Jesus. Are you tired? Are you anxious? Are you afraid? Are you burnt out on religion? Like, are you hanging by a thread? If so, come to me. Here's Jesus. If you come to me, take, take my yoke, rest in my arms, learn from me, and it's there. As you learn from me in that setting, you will find what? Rest for your souls. Like you're tired? And who isn't tired today? 
tired of politics, tired of political uncertainty, tired of economic uh, 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 uncertainty, tired of traffic in Seattle, tired, right? And, and Jesus says, come to me and look, out of a covenant relationship, I'm committed to you, you will find, as you learn to come to me, you will find rest. Second, uh, a covenant is a place of pleasure, verse three, right? I loved sitting under the tree. It brought me joy. I loved eating the fruit. When we meet the real Christ, not religious stuff, but the infinitely loving, gracious Christ who is fiercely for us, when, and then we allow ourselves to bask in the knowledge that this Christ delights in us, loves us, is incredibly for us, when we learn to you know, cherish that love and bask in that love and receive that love, the result is joy. And in my own life, when I'm tired and weary, and I am, when I'm anxious and afraid, and I am, I, it's, I find that I do run to Christ. Richard, what does that mean? Well, in my case, it means the practice of solitude and getting away somewhere in creation, whether it's somewhere around this beautiful lake right here or somewhere up in the mountains, and, and just sitting with a Bible, with a journal, and being reminded through what is going on in creation that God loves us, that God fills this earth with beauty, that God sustains us, that no, I can't control everything, but God has spoken. God has spoken in the text. God has spoken in creation. And what God has said over and over and over again is this, I am for you. Really? That's right. That's why there's still water on the earth. That's why there are still species sustaining us. That's why there's still air to breathe. That's why we're still here. God loves us. God sustains us. The covenant is a place of sustenance. The covenant is a place of pleasure. And finally, the covenant is a place of fierce intent. And so here is our groom Christ saying to us, I love you fiercely. Really? What does that mean? Well, Philippians 2. I had equality with God and I let go of it for you. I became a man. I didn't have to, but I did for you. Not just a man, a servant for you. Not just a servant, a bond servant, like a slave for you, not just a slave, but obedient, obedient to the point of death. I went to the grave, why? Covenant love, every week. <laughs> Covenant love. Is God fighting for you? Oh, you bet. And at least in my own experience, friends, I'm amazed the depth to which God pursues me. When I fail, when I'm discouraged, uh, when I'm disobedient and running from God, Psalm 139 kicks in where the psalmist says, where can you go from God? God's already there. And I found in my own life, running from God's will, running from my calling, running from the challenges of my marriage. And I run and when I'm weary and I stop, God's right there saying, you ready? Listen, buddy, I'm still with you. And I still love you. And I still will give you everything you need to live into your calling. Come on, let's go. I can't tell you how many times this has played out in my life in a, in a very real and significant way. I remember, um, you guys know me, some, many of you know me well enough to know I'm not much of a city person, actually, uh, by nature. And here I am. I remember I'd finished a, a, a book years ago uh, at a little cabin that my wife and I owned up by the Canadian border where I'd go to write. And I'd grown to love that space so much. And I finished the book, and I was kind of like, I don't have a reason to go back to this space anymore. And so after I finished the book, I spent the day, I built a little fire, and I barbecued myself a steak, and it was, I was alone, and I watched, this, I watched the sunset, and I was like this, you know, I think I just won't go home. This is perfect right here, actually. What need do I have of 
city life, and what need does the city have of me? I mean, if, if, everything will get on. If I, don't, if I don't show up at church, Eric will preach. Something will happen. It'll be fine. It's not a worry. And, and, and really, a conviction from the Holy Spirit. Jesus speaking to me, and his first words were, ha, 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 that's a rich one. You know you'll go. Yeah, but I don't want to go. And here's Jesus. Yeah, you know you'll go. And you know it'll be good. Why? For I am what? With you. Covenant love. Fruit of the covenant love? Sustenance, protection, provision, pleasure. God's fierce intent. Wow. Uh, When you see that, you know that God wants to be in covenant relationship with you. Which leads us to the second thing here. There's an invitation to covenant love. An invitation. In other words, in this chapter, we see not only his covenant determination to love her, but we see that the way that this presents is uh, first he offers an unconditional determination to to bless and affirm her. That's verse 2. Like she's the, the lily among all the thorns. But also... Uh, verses uh, 10 uh, to 13, uh, and I'll, I'll read 14 as well, but uh, here we see an invitation. Covenant love includes an invitation for the one to leave and follow the other. So it says here, my beloved respond and said to me, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come. She, like she's with this harem, and he says, come away. Look, the winter's passed, the rain is gone, the flowers have already appeared in the land, the time is ripe for pruning and vines, the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in the land, the fig tree is ripened, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me, come with me. That's the groom saying to uh, the, the bride here, come away with me, right? And it's, our, it's this articulation from the groom that invites, I love it, it invites but never compels, He's not like, I'm the man, you're coming with me. It's no, 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 no. All woven in this language, it's pure invitation. It's an articulation of his desire for her to be with him. Uh, And the man has suggested to her that her present location is a limiting one defined by fear and has spoken of the outside world only in glowing terms designed to make the outside world attractive to her. Out here... The rains are over. Out here there's flowers. Everything's in, bl- in bloom. It's the time for the trimming of the vine. This is fruitfulness. This is, this is life. This is joy. This is sunshine. This is warmth. Come with me. That's covenant love. God inviting, you see. And so here's the thing. The covenant, the covenant relationship, we're under this rubric here of invitation. When God invites us or when we invite or, or are invited in marriage, the covenant relationship always calls for leaving. There's always a leaving that has to happen. Uh, in, in Genesis 2, when uh, marriage is articulated as God's vision for humanity, it says, for this cause a man shall what? Leave his father and mother and be joined to the other. In other words, marriage requires always, like a covenant relationship requires a leaving. And so when we're speaking about human relationships on the, on the horizontal plane here, my encouragement to all of you in the room is to make sure that as, as you enter into a covenant relationship of marriage that you're leaving home. This is something that I talk about whenever I'm privileged to do premarital counseling. I always ask the couple, hey, have you guys left home? And they're like, yeah, yeah, well, we've left home. But I will say to you, if the one you're dating is still getting an allowance, they haven't left home. 
It's just a sign, right? You know. And so at what level, like what, do you, like what does leaving home actually mean? Well, it means not only financial, but it actually means emotional too. And when I, when I talk to couples about this, I share part of my own story where I grew up in a home where my mom uh, wasn't always affirming of the choices that I would make. And, and I found that annoying. And, uh, uh, but I never said anything. I kind of stuffed it a little bit. And I thought, well, whatever. I'll marry, and then, you know, all will be well. So, you know, I get engaged, and, and my wife Donna and I are driving from Seattle down to California. We've just gotten engaged, and now we're going to, you know, tell friends and family and that kind of thing. And my, as, we were, as we're driving, we'd never been on a long drive before together, and Donna begins to behave in a way that mirrors my mom, kind of like she's trying to help me drive. Do you know what I mean by that? Help me drive. So she's, you know, it's time for lane change, and you're going a little too fast right now, and why isn't your seatbelt on, you know, whatever. I don't remember the details. All I remember is being super, super annoyed to the point then where we're going to stop and look at a waterfall or something, and, she, and Donna says to me, hey, park there, and I snapped. Like I drove as far from that space as I possibly could, <laughs> and I parked the car, and to my shame now, though Donna knows this, it's our, it's our story, not mine, but I looked at her, I said, I don't know if I want to marry you. That's a big thing to say, right? Like we're engaged. She says, why? And she's crying, you know. I said, well, and then I, I said, I can't handle it. I just can't handle this, like the way, you're, the way you're being right now. And this led to a long, very fruitful conversation. And, and here's what made it good. The, like, in the end, we realized my problem is with her. My problem is with my mom, right? And, and when she would mirror in any way, even remotely, the issues I still had with my mom, I'd back up the whole dump truck and pour it on her, you see? And, and, and so this is leaving. Like, if you're going to get married, leave. You have to leave, because why? This is a new thing. And then uh, it has application uh, with us as God's people. Remember, here's Abraham, leave your land. Here's Moses, leave the desert, go back uh, to Egypt. Here's David, leave your, leave your land during this time when you've been anointed as king, but aren't yet king, you have to leave. Jesus' birth, uh, the angels say to the shepherds, leave your flock. Jesus calls his disciples, leave your fishing, leave your tax collecting. The rich young ruler, leave your wealth. The woman caught in adultery, leave your sin. Uh, the man possessed by demons, leave your madness. Everybody has to leave. Like you can't be in a covenant relationship without leaving. And so here's a question on the table for everybody in the room this morning. Are you leaving anything to follow Jesus or is Jesus an addendum? Because Jesus did not come to be an addendum in your life. Christ came to be Lord, and by Lord, he means lover, and by lover, he means covenant relationship, and by covenant relationship, he means leave. Look, if upward mobility is what you want to marry, then go after being rich, fine. Or if you want to marry sexual pleasure, sleep around. That's your thing. I get it. Or, 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 or if you want, you know, recreation or the perfect body, if that's, if that's how you want to define your life, define your life that way, but don't think for a minute that you can do that and be in relationship with Jesus because Jesus wants covenant love. And there's no covenant love without leaving. What do you need to leave? What do I need to leave? It's a question on the table this morning. Jesus isn't someone you call on from time to time. He's not a one-night stand. <laughs> it's a union. Now, last thing, response to covenant invitation. In, it's so interesting. In marriage, there are two sets of questions that are articulated. Uh, the couple comes down the aisle here, and uh, the, the parents are there, or the dad, or the mom, or whatever, and then, the, and then the, the bride, and then the groom is to my left. There's a couple right over in the corner that I married recently. Uh, and, and I remember. So here's what happens. When couples come, 
there's two covenants that are made, right? Because the first thing that happens is I turn to the guy and I say, will you have this woman uh, to be your wife, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health? Forsaking all others, be faithful to her uh, alone as long as you both shall live. And then she says, without even thinking about it, or he says, uh, I will. She, he says, I will. And then I ask her and she says, I will. And then later, up here, I go, would you not join hands and repeat after me? And then I do a second covenant. You know, I, Richard, take you, Donna, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we're parted by death. As God is my witness, I give you my promise. Man, I've already told you, no one knows what they're saying when they say that. <laughs> but the other thing that happens on, on wedding day is this. Nobody's asking the question analytically. What if I'm making two covenants? Why is there one down there and one up here? What's that? Isn't one good enough? I hope you're not thinking that on your wedding day. That's a little too analytical. You should be starry-eyed and all that stuff. But here's the deal. Watch this. Why a double vow? Because a double covenant. Yeah, double covenant. What does that mean? Well, here's the thing. I always say this. The fulfillment of your vows up here will be dependent on the vow that you each made individually to God down there. Because you first made a vow to God. I will love this other. I'll do it. As God is my witness, through thick and thin, I will honor and keep. In sickness and in health, forsaking all others. This is a vow made to God. And so uh, the fulfillment of your vows made to each other depends on the value made to God. And the value made to God is impossible to fill, fulfill, fulfill apart from God's strength. You don't have what it takes to love someone, comfort, honor, keep, and sickness and health. You don't have what it takes, neither do I. You can't love. You can tolerate. But you can't love. Not perfectly. Not 24-7. You can't honor you can encourage, you can seduce, you can nag, you can control. You probably do all four at different times. But you can't honor 24-7, day in and day out, and especially when you add the clauses in sickness and in health. Not possible. So what you're saying are things that you cannot fulfill. So the vow that you made to God needs a strength that you don't have for fulfillment. And that's the dilemma. But the very good news that is the gospel is this. God made a vow to you. <laughs> Through my death and resurrection, I will now empower you to be who you could never be on your own, giving you the strength to be love when you cannot be, to be honor when you cannot be, to be faithful when you don't want to be, I'll be there. I made a covenant with you, and my covenant is unconditional, infinite, irrevocable. I am for you. God made a vow to you so that you can make a vow before God that will enable you to make a vow to each other. Covenant love. So there's a question on the table this morning as we close. Have you responded to God's vow to you? Because that's what's foundational to marriage. And uh, uh, when 18-year-olds are looking around saying, I just don't see any marriage worth emulating, the foundational problem is right there. The first thing you need is to take seriously the, the invitation that God has given to you. Come away with me. Let me ravish you. 
Let me fill you with my life. He's the groom. Let me fill you with my life so that you will now have a life not your own that will enable you to fulfill the vow that you so desperately want to live into as a married couple. Have you taken God's, have you responded to God's vow? And then secondly, are you taking seriously your own vow? Your vow to God, and if you're married in the room, your vow to each other. Three vows. God's vow to you, (laughs) your vow to God, your vow to each other. When we take these vows seriously and enter into covenant, then we, only, we really do only have eyes for the other. We really are able to say after 38 years, yeah, better now. Better now than then. Wow. I want that for all of you. And it's available. Why? Covenant love. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Not all of us in the room have been blessed with consistent covenant love. There's betrayal. There's failure. There's loneliness. Thank you that you are able to make up uh, for the lost years. Thank you that however we have failed in our marriages, uh, we can again become people of covenant. And it all starts with our relationship with you. Would you speak to us of that this morning? And then of our relationship to you vis-a-vis our commitment to love and then our vows with each other. May your spirit move among us as we respond in grace. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's worship together.